Uh, well, if you're new with us, uh, welcome to Church at Bergen. Uh, we are a, a church we gather every single Sunday at 9.15 and 11 o'clock uh, to worship and gather around and to adore Jesus Christ. Uh, I just felt like saying, I just feel especially grateful for Jesus Christ, uh, especially grateful that the Son of God uh, came to this earth and uh, did not consider his, his exalted position something to prevent him from coming and dwelling amongst us. Uh, so, so let that thought encourage you and lift you up in worship today. Uh, but if, you, if this is your first time coming, so we, we're here to worship Jesus. Uh, we're here to, to celebrate him and to lift him high. And, and we long for our hearts to be stirred up with great joy and gratitude uh, towards who he is and what he's done for us in the cross. Uh, so we worship him in a number of ways. We do that through singing songs that, that center upon who Jesus is. So you're going to hear about Jesus a lot. Uh, we do that also through preaching. Uh, the Bible, we believe it is the Word of God, uh, that it is without error, and that we can declare, because it has no error, we can declare from it with authority and conviction, knowing that God has given us truth uh, to be nourished and strengthened by it. And we also do it through taking the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper almost every single week because it's a gift from Jesus Christ uh, to his church by which we have our faith strengthened and we, we, we call the, what, what Christ has done in sacrificing himself uh, for us on the cross for our sins. And we also uh, worship Jesus by giving. Uh, we don't pass a plate. Uh, we, we have little boxes in the back wall on the exit doors back there. If you want to give, you can give there. But if you're new, we're not asking for your money. Uh, you can keep your money. Uh, but if you, for those of you that have been coming here for a while or members also, uh, thank you for your generosity in that way. Uh, just a couple things before I dive right in. Uh, number one, uh, next Sunday is going to be our Christmas Eve Eve service. And please note, we have very exciting, it's going to be a good time. Please note that small time change, okay? Uh, it's going to be 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Typically it's 9.15 and 11. Please come at 9, okay? So we want to provide some space because it's probably going to be a lot more people uh, at these two services. And then in preparation uh, for the Christmas Eve Eve service, we're having a special night of worship and prayer this Wednesday night, 7.30 to 8.30. Uh, it's going to be a really special time. The worship team is really putting a nice set together. Uh, so please, we invite you to come. It's going to be very reflective. Uh, hopefully it'll be a nice worshipful time for us all. Uh, so we vote, we're in our uh, Servant King series. This is our annual Advent series. Advent just means the coming of Jesus Christ, and the Son of God came to this earth as the man Jesus Christ. Uh, and this idea of Servant King. And we're, we're going through the book of uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 in the book of Philippians. And we're also memorizing it together. So we'll recite our memory verse today uh, to, in just a moment. Uh, but last, the first week, two weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached on the divinity of Jesus, right? That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That Jesus Christ, before he became the man Jesus Christ, he was eternally the Son of God. Fully divine, he was not sub-God, he was not a demigod, he was not a, a mini-God, he was equal with God. But he did not consider that status a thing to be held onto, seized, that is used for his own selfish gain. He was willing to let it go. And so last week I preached on the humanity, so divinity and then humanity, that he, Christ emptied himself that does not mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. He, be, he took on what he was not, humanity, while also remaining who he always is in his divinity. And he emptied himself, taking the form, not of a king, 
not of an exalted Lord, but of a servant. The literal translation is a slave. He served us. He came down to dwell among us. He veiled his glory in human flesh. And this week, we're going to be looking at the humility of Jesus and his death. Not just going to be talking, last week we were talking about when he came to the earth. Today we're talking about the humility of Jesus in fulfilling his mission to die. Before I do that, though, before I pray, it's time to recite the memory verse. Are you guys ready? Have you guys been encouraged by this memory verse? Yes, I hope so, because I have found, please, please hear me, I have found memory, memorizing scripture, uh, it, it has become such a treasured thing for me. Uh, whenever I, if I've got three little girls, if I'm rocking my daughter, or I'm driving somewhere, or I've got a moment, and if you have scripture stored in your mind, you're able to meditate upon it as opposed to drifting towards something like your mortgage payment or some stresses you have or whatever it is. Now, you know what I mean. Like, you've got all this stuff, but if you've got stuff, you've got scripture in your mind, you're able to treasure it and meditate upon it. This whole week, I've just been meditating upon Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, which is what we're doing today. So you guys ready? Say it together. I'll do it nice and slow. Uh, So you guys can say it in unison with me, okay? Here we go. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our text today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. How deep your love, how deep the Father's love for us. You did not spare your own son. And then the beauty of your son, willingly, obediently humbling himself to the point of death and death on a cross. Grant that our hearts would sense and feel and be changed permanently by the humility of Jesus today. Help me to preach with joy and clarity and power and make our hearts ready to receive the truth with all eagerness that you may be glorified to the highest this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Philippians 2 verse 8, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. I really have one central question that I'm kind of centering my whole sermon around, and it's this. How is obedience a form of humility? How is obedience a form of humility? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think it has to do with a conflict of desires. 
conflict of desires, right? You've got two people with opposing desires. One wants one thing, another person wants another thing, right? So the example that I, I thought of this week was, a, it's probably very typical amongst the crowd here. You've got a husband and a wife tonight that sit down on the couch after you've put your kids to bed, or if you don't have kids, whatever. Uh, you sit on the couch and you just say, the, what the wife says, so what do you want to watch? And the husband says, apprehensively, tentatively, fearfully, <laughs> I think I want to watch the new Predator movie. Um, I'm a sci-fi guy. And the wife goes, ew. <laughs> That's interesting, because I wanted to watch the new Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> How many of you are Hallmark Christmas movie freaks, all right? My wife and I, we fall and pray. So the husband and the wife, right, they have a stare down for like 10 seconds, and before you know it, they're watching what? The Hallmark Christmas movie, right? What happens? The husband, out of love, humbled himself underneath his wife's desires. Now, now, he brought himself under his wife's desires, but the motivation, this is key, Ha, 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 funny, 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 right? Now, the motivation behind that action of the husband determines whether or not his action was honorable or dishonorable. If he did it out of fear, he was being humbled, and it's a demonstration of weakness, and it's not beautiful, and it's not honorable. But if he does it out of love, he humbles himself. And it's a demonstration of strength. But what happens? What happens when things change? Because the, the honorableness and the beauty of a humble action, of humbling yourself under someone else's desires, the beauty of that action can be greater or it can be lesser depending upon another factor, the, what it costs for you to humble yourself. Right? A husband who gives up watching Predator, I'm sorry. Some of you guys are probably like, that's a huge cost, but I mean, get a life, all right? So <laughs> the cost of humbling yourself determines the beauty and the honorableness of that action. So back to the same illustration that I used. How does it change if the husband was given a job offer that if he were to accept it, it would uproot his wife from her hometown, her family, and her friends permanently? The costs are so much higher. Husband wants to go. The wife does not want to go. After a while, the wife looks at the husband and says, I know how much this means to you. I know how hard you've worked for this. And I know I want to see you flourish as a man. I know this is right for us as a family. I know this will provide for our family. I know this is best for our kids. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to hurt a lot. It's going to cause a lot of collateral damage. But I love you. So I'm willing to move. The beauty of that act of humility of the wife humbling her desires under her husband's desires is so much more beautiful because it was out of love and she humbled herself. It was not out of fear. The husband was not making her do it. She willingly 
un- endured it and put herself underneath that. It's a demonstration of tremendous strength and beauty that can be shown in humility. So when it says, and being found in human form, Christ Jesus humbled himself. He was not being humbled. He humbled himself. He put himself underneath this. It was out of love. It's a tremendous demonstration of strength. It seemed like weakness, but it was the strength and the power of God. He humbled himself in becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now that phrase, Paul could have said, Paul could have said, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. He could have just said that. You see that? But he chose to say, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every single word in the Bible matters. There's no such thing as like fluffy words. Oh, Paul just kind of got redundant here. He was being intentional to communicate the depth and the extent of Jesus' humility, even Not just any death, even death on a cross. If you know anything about crucifixion, it was designed by the Romans to elongate suffering and to maximize shame. They had it down to a science. If you were crucified, you were most likely totally naked while tons of people smothered you, drowned you, suffocated you in mockery, shame, ridicule. And on top of that, you're probably suffocating to death, hanging by the nails that were in your hands and in your feet. And Jesus Christ humbled himself underneath that. Out of love, he chose to subject himself to the suffering and the shame of the cross. This is what made Jesus' humility so beautiful. And as I was preparing this week, I, many of us, um, you don't have to be a Christian to like the Chronicles of Narnia, but C.S. Lewis, his Chronicles of Narnia are a fantastic series. It illustrates the beauty of Aslan's humility under his execution, right? If you know anything about uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is, is, is the lion. He's the king of Narnia, and he kind of represents Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis was a Christian, and he wrote Chronicles of Narnia with uh, Christian themes and images. And there's a moment one of the char- main characters, Edmund, uh, commits treason against Narnia, and he has to die for treason. And Aslan the king, the great lion, Aslan the king, chooses to offer his life in place of Edmund, to be executed by the great white witch so that Edmund would be freed. Here's the scene. I'll just read it for you. This is the scene of Aslan's execution. They rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied his four paws together, shouting and jeering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. 
Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre stood back and the children watching from their hiding place. Lucy is, is off hiding in the bushes. Another one of the main characters is watching the execution. Hiding in their hiding place could see the face of Aslan looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all. Oh, how could they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. It was in the willingness of Aslan to be shamed under the crushing weight of this execution that his beauty shined brightest. You see, Aslan was, uh, he was a majestic and beautiful king the whole time. Everyone knew he was the great, great, great king, Aslan. But what Lucy discovered, she discovers Aslan to be more beautiful in the weakness and shame of her execution in the place of Edmund. But what made it so beautiful? I think what makes this scene so beautiful is right at the beginning of the, of the, uh, the part in the story. When it says, and they tied all his four paws together shouting and jeering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. It was the ferocious strength of Aslan under control as his enemies were crushing him. He could have just smeared them all with his paws. But he withheld the strength willingly to die in the place of Edmund. And the prophet Isaiah... In the great Isaiah chapter 53, the servant song, it's called when it foretells the death of Jesus, uses similar language. Prophet Isaiah says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he kept his mouth closed. With one word, he could have blasted everyone who was executing him. And he withheld that power. We also learn towards the, right before Jesus is about to be crucified, when Peter so erratically just grabs a sword and cuts the guy's ears off and Jesus says to him, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Can you imagine going through what Jesus went through? Right, You and I, we get one whip to the back and we're like, I'm done. Angels, that's it. Send the angels, Lord. I can't handle this. This is hurting too much. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. This is the beauty of Jesus, the servant king. King 
awesome in power and majesty and authority and strength, yet he's also simultaneously the servant, tender in meekness, surrender, all underneath the shame and suffering of the cross. This is why the divinity, the first week that Pastor Mike preaches, is so important. If you don't keep that in mind, it seems as just a man is dying. But when you realize it was God himself willingly subjecting himself in human flesh to this type of shame and suffering, it changes the game. Now before we close, with just some practical ways why this matters for us today. I want you guys to just meditate with me for just a moment on the word obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient. The word obedient literally means to attentively listen. So the question is, who was Jesus listening to? Who was he attentively listening to? It wasn't those who were crucifying him. It wasn't Satan and his demons. So who was it? He tells us in John 14, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. He wants the whole world, he wants the universe, the galaxies, he wants Satan to look. And I want you to see how much I love my dad. So I attentively listen to him as I, every, every, every single whip, every single nail driven in. Every single piece of mockery, every time he was punched, every time the beard was ripped out of his face, he was listening to his father saying to him, I love you, son. I'm with you, son. I'm so proud of you, son. I know this hurts, son. I'm with you. We're almost through this. I've got a, I've got a place right for you at the right hand of my throne, and I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to crush all your enemies under your feet. Keep going, son. Keep going, son. Keep going, son. Preach now. In fact, the moment of his father's highest pleasure. When was the father most pleased with his son? It wasn't at the baptism. It was when Jesus was willingly enduring the wrath of God in our place. All the way to the end, the, the, the moment of the Father's highest pleasure. This is a mystery now. How could God be pouring out his wrath at the same time being having pleasure in his son? Because it was all in obedience to his Father. It was all to vindicate his Father. It was all to honor the Father. It was all to show the world how much the Son loves the Father. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And you need to know something. That word behind, the Hebrew word behind will is the Hebrew word hafetz. 
It means pleasure. It was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. His soul was making an offering as a guilt offering for our sins. It pleased the Father so much not to inflict pain on his son. That's a sick characterization of the cross. It was his father saying, son, you are so beautiful that you would willingly endure this in the place of these people. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. Sounds a lot like humbled himself. Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Did Jesus deserve those wounds? No. I deserve those wounds. But he got them. And yet I received the healing. But all the while, you need to realize, it says he continued entrusting himself. He was trusting his father. He was honoring his father. He was obeying his father. He was treasuring his father. No other moment in the life of Jesus was the father more delighted in his son than when he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. I mean, any of you who have sons, is your heart not explode with pride when your son or any of your children do something hard and they're doing it in honor of you and they're doing it because they love you and they're do, but they're, they're doing something hard? Nothing was more difficult for both the father and the son. And yet Jesus humbled himself under the father's will out of love for him and love for us. He was, this is huge, he was not humbled under his father's will. He humbled himself. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we understand that Jesus humbled himself underneath this? That it was, it was an act of obedience. The whole bloody massacre of the cross was an act of humble obedience on Jesus' part. The reason why it's so important we understand is because people in Christianity today claim that the death of Jesus was a form of divine child abuse. They say things like, if you believe that Jesus was punished for our sins by his father, then God is guilty of child abuse. Understandably, People struggle with the idea that Jesus absorbed God's wrath on the cross for our sins. Understandably. You know, I remember that I will never forget the first time I heard this clever little trick in caricaturizing the death of Jesus. It was about eight years ago. I was uh, teaching Bible at a small Christian school in the Philly area. 
Um, and I was, just, I was just growing so much in my understanding of the death of Jesus. I mean, I always knew that Jesus died for my sins and great and great, that's awesome. But I began to, to see underneath the superficial view of it under, and see the, the full beauty of Jesus bearing the full weight of my sin and judgment in my place. And I just remember like being so, I felt like Lucy. I felt like Lucy hiding in the bushes, seeing Aslan and being, and being stunned and seeing Jesus more beautiful under the mockery and the shame and the suffering of the cross and being thralled, enthralled with his beauty. And so when I heard this accusation against God, I felt like as if I was Lucy and I was watching Aslan and some, some skeptical smart aleck comes up next to me and kind of nudges me and says, what are you doing? You're going to worship that king? That's, that's, that's not a beautiful, that's, that's the act of a sick God who demands some sort of like child sacrifice. I used to get troubled by this accusation until I did my homework. And it turns out this accusation against God has been around since the 11th century at least. And somehow it keeps regurgitating itself into the church over and over again. And King Solomon is always right. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Any new, clever little tweak of theology, it's not new. It's already been said. It's already been old. It's boring. The church has already dealt with it. So you don't need to be enamored by new, clever tricks. You do not need to be enamored. Also, I realize that this accusation of divine child abuse is based upon a very shallow understanding of the cross. They are not willing to look underneath the surface like Lucy, like a child. Like Lucy, underneath all the shame and the suffering and see the beauty of King Jesus willingly doing it out of love demonstrating his glory all the more. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus' death in our place is not some doctrine made up by guys who were stuck in their mythological views of a sick God who deserves human sacrifice. The cross is the glorious plan of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian effort out of his infinite wisdom to redeem sinners like you and me and at the end of the day exalt his Son, Jesus Christ, over Satan, sin, death, demons, and hell. So whenever I hear accusations against God like this, I always go back to Philippians 2, verse 8, that he humbled himself. He was not forced under this. It was a total act of willing, God-honoring obedience. So frankly, I have come to the conclusion today, as, the same, as, as this, whole, this whole accusation against God, I've come to the same conclusion as J.I. Packer, who's one of the 25, people say he's the 25 most influential evangelicals in the church today. I've come to the same conclusion about this accusation against God as J.F. Packer, who says, quote, 
Smarty pants notions like divine child abuse as a comment on the cross are supremely silly and as irreverent and wrong as they could possibly be. The cross is why we sing. It's why we sing. You know what gets me out of bed and brings me to this church every single week? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. To make a wretch his treasure. Some churches have even changed the lyrics to In Christ Alone. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they've changed the lyrics too. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. It's clever. The only question I have is this. What is it about the death of Christ that magnifies the love of God? Don't just tell me his love is magnified. Magnify it for me. What is it about the death of Christ that magnifies the love of God? Jonathan Edwards, a long time ago in the 1700s, answered this question with two reasons. There are two things, he says, that make Christ's love magnificent. Number one, that he willingly endured the greatness of our sins. And number two, he willingly endured the greatness of the sufferings for our sins. The reason I find that lyric change unhelpful and deadening to your worship is because it merely tells you that his love is magnified as opposed to actually magnifying it. What greater display of love could the Father and the Son show you than their willingness to endure the cross together? To remove the phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied, does not magnify God's love. It minimizes his love. As a result, the joy of the worshiper of you and me is deflated and it is stale. And so we're going to sing in Christ alone today. It's going to be the last song that we sing. I think Dave, is that right? Okay, yes, in Christ alone. And I hope, I pray that the Holy Spirit lifts you into the deeper reality underneath the superficial view of the cross and looks beyond the bloodiness and beyond the suffering, beyond the shame and sees the heart of Christ behind the whole deal. Here's how we'll end. We'll just end just asking the question, why does this matter to us today? In closing application, just... Take a little look at the phrase. Go back at Philippians 2.8 if you could. The phrase right in the middle where it says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Okay, I'm going to give you some, some Greek here, okay? <laughs> uh, that phrase, to the point of death, is mekri thanatu. Mekri is to the point. 
Thanatu is of death. The only other place in the entire New Testament that that phrase is used is at the bottom of Philippians chapter 2. And it's not talking about what Jesus did. It's talking about, about a man named, what a man named Epaphroditus did in the work, for the work of Jesus Christ. He says in Philippians, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25 to 30, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. That's not the phrase, actually. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. Here it is. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. If you have a Bible out, and you might have a footnote by that phrase. If you follow that footnote down to the bottom of the page, maybe you do, I don't know. It gives you the more literal translation. It's behind that phrase is the phrase, Mekri thanatu. For he drew near to the point of death for the work of Christ. I think Paul is intentionally giving us a visual display of how it changes someone when they come in contact with Jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It changes to you. You now, you do not view your life as any value nor as precious to yourself, if only you may finish the course that Jesus Christ has given you. Why would Epaphroditus be willing to suffer and come near to the point of death for the work of Christ? Was it not because he himself had been gripped by the sufferings that Jesus Christ endured for him? Only by trusting in the servant king who humbled himself to the point of death and death on a cross. Can anyone truly ever become the type of person that's willing to give their life for Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't simply draw near to the point of death. He went to the whole nine yards for you and me. So I just want to close with a couple questions for self-examination for, you, for, for each of us. A few questions. Number one. What hard thing is Jesus calling you to humbly obey the Father for? What hard thing is Jesus calling you to humble yourself underneath? Number two, where are you, where are you grumbling and complaining rather than trusting and resting. You know why we grumble, right? We grumble and complain in circumstances in life when we forget the providence of God. And I know that all things work together for my good. All things means all things. So if all things work together for your good, God is, though it may seem hard, though it may hurt, though it may be painful, it is for your ultimate good. And when we forget this, this is when we grumble, this is when we complain, this is when we get irritable. 
Can you imagine Jesus grumbling and complaining the whole way to the cross? I've really got to die for these people? Like, are you seriously? For that guy? I've got to endure this for that guy? Well, all right, fine. He humbly, gladly subjected himself to this physical, this very difficult thing, the cross, so that you would see that, be captivated that, and humble yourself under the hand of God even through the hard things. Number three, do you still have the wonder of Lucy who saw the beauty of Aslan's humility under suffering? Or have you grown cynical and dull toward the beauty of Christ's death in your place? Number four, where in your life are you too proud to humble yourself for the sake of someone else's benefit? You've got a conflict of desires maybe in your life. You know what you should do. And you're simply refusing to do it. You're refusing and you've grown and you've been doing it for so long and your, your heart's beginning to become hard. The only way that your heart can be softened and come underneath and humble yourself is by seeing what Jesus did for you. And last but not least, what are you refusing to follow through on in your obedience to Jesus? Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He went the whole way. Where are you stopping short? Where are you beginning to obey and then you, uh, that's a little too hard. I don't know if I can do that. It's a little too much for me. Where are you falling short? Where are you falling short? We must look to Jesus who humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and let that free you to walk in obedience to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this time and for the beauty of Jesus' humility and what he willingly endured for us, how he willingly endured the cross for us. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. May that grip us today. May that impact us today. Help us to sing in worship of you. We would see the wonder of Jesus dying in our place for our sins. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.